I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. When Matt asked if I would preach, he suggested or he had mentioned that you guys are in the middle of a series on the deadly sins and uh, asked if I wanted to pick one of those. And I felt like I would uh, leave that to your elder team. So I decided that I would like to preach to you this morning from the gospel found in the book of Leviticus. So, but keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 10. If you ever started a read through the Bible program, it's pretty easy to get through the first 50 chapters, jump into Exodus, first 20 chapters, move along pretty well, then you start hitting Mount Sinai and the law, and by the time you get to Leviticus, most people have already moved on to John, right? Um, <laughs> So you're typically mid-February. Mid-February, John is read quite often, I think. Um, I think part of the reason is, is Leviticus feels like a million miles away uh, for us. It, uh, we don't live in an area where animal sacrifices are part of it. We, uh, we justify, well, hasn't Jesus done away with all of this anyways? And so we move on to something that seems a little bit more uh, relevant. I know that struggle. I've been in John many Februaries of my own. Um, But I want to challenge and encourage us to resist that urge to overlook some of the scriptures. Obviously, you know that the Apostle Paul said that all scripture has been given, and he was referring to the book of Leviticus. Jesus himself said, these scriptures testify of me. Um, the book of Leviticus being there. All scripture is God-breathed and is profitable. Now, some scriptures, I will admit, are take a little bit more reading, take a little bit more digging, take a little bit more study to see where the prophet lies. But I believe the Apostle Paul, I believe the Lord Jesus, when he says that these scriptures are good for us. A few years back, I was teaching through a Sunday school series on the Pentateuch, um, primarily, I did this because I wanted to study. Uh, I wanted to study up on the Pentateuch, and it, I quickly found out that the uh, the book of Leviticus became my favorite book of the first five. And uh, I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you and challenge you that if you would set aside three hours and get, if you set aside three hours and 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 don't read it yourself, because I know you'll get bogged down. But get one of these uh, online programs and just listen and follow along. You will be encouraged and blessed during those three hours as you see the flow of the book of Leviticus from beginning to end there. So I want to encourage someone to take that up. And Matt, you'll just email me for how many people actually come to you and say what a blessing that was. Uh, The context of Leviticus, as you probably know, is that God's covenant people, Israel... Uh, have just been delivered out of Egypt after 430 years in bondage. During that incubation time in Egypt, the nation grows from a family of 70 people to somewhere around 2 million individuals. We, we get to that number of 2 million. It's a, it's a bit arbitrary. It's a bit of a guess. But we get to that because in the first chapter of the book of Numbers, it says that of all of the 
males that were of uh, the age to be a warrior, 20 years and above, there were 603,000. So just over 600,000 uh, meritable males, is that a right word, meritable, or of marriage age. Um, so, you know, add a wife, throw in a couple kids there, you get to around 2 million people. These people had never, coming out of Egypt, they've never had to rule themselves. Uh, they've never been really giving, given any direction as to who their God was. They were related to one another based upon ethnicity and the fact that they were slaves. That's what kept them bound for those centuries. And for 15 generations, they'd been marginalized and told what to do. And now all of a sudden, they're free. They've been delivered. They've been saved. But over 15 generations, this people has developed some ingrained ways, some in deeply embedded patterns on how to live. And God is going to show them who he is. He's going to teach them and guide them until this people fulfilled their divine purpose in their day. And that purpose is much like the purpose that we have, is to bring God glory among the people that he placed them. That may sound a lot to you, and I hope it does, of what your story is. You've been saved. You've come to a place where you have been delivered. But there's a lot of patterns, a lot of ways of living that you've developed over years before that deliverance occurred. Or maybe even since. And God wants you to break free from those patterns so that you and I will live that kind of life that will bring him praise among the peoples that we are surrounded. And I want you to take comfort in the fact that, and I hope you will see this, that God is committed to his purposes for your life more than you are committed to that same purpose. God is committed. He has claimed you, he's called you, he's redeemed you, and he will sanctify you for his glory. So in the time remaining, which I'm certain I will go over because I'm Baptist, um, in the time remaining, I want to draw your attention to three big gospel items that I see in the book of Leviticus, and they are these. Number one, the necessity for holiness the necessity for holiness. Number two, the provision of blood. And number three, the inadequacy of animals. The necessity of holiness, the provision of blood, and the inadequacy of animals. Let's jump into that first one, the necessity for holiness. In the book of Leviticus, and, I, and you're just going to have to take my word for it because it's a big book, and so we're not going to be flipping through there. That's why I want you in Hebrews chapter 10. But in the book of Leviticus, over 80 times the word, the Hebrew word for holy or holiness is used in this book. Now, when we hear the term holiness, we oftentimes jump to this idea of being morally pure, having an upright character. And there's an aspect of being holy, when, when, when you hear the term holier than thou, that's what people are talking about, a character quality of someone else. But when we hear that term holy, the first thing that we jump to should not be character. The first thing that we should jump to is this, is this idea of being set apart or being devoted to the Lord. 
and to the Lord God and his purposes. And the reason I say that is because as you look in the book of Leviticus, certain things were declared holy that could not have character defects. The tabernacle was called holy. The utensils used in the tabernacle was called holy. The congregation or the people of Israel were to be holy. The priests were to be holy. God says in this book several times that he wants them to be holy as I am holy. You be holy as I am holy. Now, you, you and I know that this command still applies today. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 says that we are to be holy as God is holy. So I want to ask you this. Are you, do you see yourself as being set apart, devoted to God and His purposes? We are to be holy as God is holy. There are ways that God is holy that you and I will never be holy. But God still says, you be holy as I am holy. Are there areas of your life that you maintain control over? And you are holding with white-knuckled intent to maintain that you believe perhaps God may want to take over. There was a period of my life where we were missionaries in Africa, East Africa. We spent 10 years as foreign missionaries. And one of the things that uh, I realized is that being a missionary had become an idol in my heart. And when it was being wrenched from me, I realized that I had convinced myself that I was being holy to God by being a missionary. But what, I, what had subtly happened at some point is that as that was being taken away from me, that's another long story, the way I responded to that real, I revealed to my own heart that I wasn't about God's purposes in being missionary, or at least wholly devoted to that. But in, in many ways, being a missionary had become about Alec Millen. Are there things in your life that you're doing that have a form of godliness but may not be actually devoted to the Lord's purposes in your life. See, the reason we have to maintain this idea of holiness as being primarily devoted over to God, rather than moral purity or some character, uh, exalted character um, issue, is because this idea that uh, Paul tells Timothy that we, there is an appearance of godliness. That comes without the power that God supplies. 2 Peter chapter 3.15 says that. It's, there's an appearance of godliness that can be manufactured. Kids, teens, you know this. You can make your church family think that you have got this figured out. That you're really walking, whereas in your heart you may not have truly surrendered to the Lord. But the rest of us are in that same category, aren't we? We know how to do that. 
There is an appearance of godliness that comes without the power of God. We have to be really careful that we don't have this idea that God wants us to look a certain way, to behave a certain way, but our hearts are from Him. Isn't that who Jesus had the greatest condemnation for? You're a bunch of whitewashed tombs. White on the outside, clean on the outside, but inside you're full of dead men's bones. Those kind of verses scare me. For myself, but also for our congregation. Sadly, I see that many Christians are content with being the good guys. The nice girls. They do the right things. They don't sin. They're nice. They smile. But you begin to press them and they can begin to reveal that they maybe aren't so devoted to God's radical agenda for their life. That agenda that is to make Him known among the nations. That our lives are about Him. We need to reject that form of faith. We need to own that God has delivered us out of our Egypt. Our slavery to sin. So that we might live for the sake of His name among the people that He's put us among. Right here in Harrisburg. So that's the first I see in the book of Leviticus. There is a necessity that God says, be holy. And that applies to us today. The second thing that I see in Leviticus is the provision of blood. A few years ago, my wife Tammy and I were, I guess it was an anniversary weekend, yeah. And we were up in a rural part of Pennsylvania. And we went to this bed and breakfast that she had found. And part of the, the farm or wherever, it was up near Sealands Grove area, there was a farm and they had some chicken houses. And I, I grew up in Georgia. Um, and I don't know why I'd never seen a chicken house. I mean, there are plenty of chicken houses in Georgia, but here we were. We had a bed and breakfast and I have a little bit of ADD. So, you know, sitting around all weekend and staring into my wife's eyes, you know, I lasted for a couple hours. Um, but then I wanted, you know, I, had, I needed something to do. And I'm not, you know, so I saw a chicken house. And I said, I'm going to walk down the chicken house. I've never been in a chicken house. Anybody here like me, you've never been into a chicken house? Raise your hand. You've never been into a chicken house. That's okay. Yeah. I'm about to tell you what it's like. It's gross. <laughs> I walk into this thing. You know, it's these long houses, metal on. they got fans on either end. There's a reason there's a fan on both ends. You walk into these things, and there were literally, I had, you know, I couldn't count that fast. The entire thing is covered with chickens. I mean, they're not in little cages sitting on the thing, squatting there having eggs. They're covering the ground, and there's dead ones there too. I think the, the farmer walks through, or sends his, probably his kids through every day, and walks through, and the live chickens move, and they pick the dead ones up and put them in bags. I mean, there's tons of chickens. 30,000 chickens per house in this particular farmer. And he had three of them. And I thought, how in the world can that many chickens be eaten in all of America? Like, how? I'm sorry, buddy. You okay? I mean, 90,000 chickens? How can that be? You know, people like chickens. And so I asked the guy, I said, what do you use all these chickens for? He says, well, we sell them. Oh, that was sort of a dumb question, but uh, what do you, and he said, well, you know, once a year, we ship all 90,000 up to Crown Heights, Brooklyn, New York, because on the day of Yom Kippur, 
um, the, the uh, Hasidic Jews, and you can actually watch this on YouTube, by the way. I looked it up. The, uh, the Hasidic Jews on Yom Kippur uh, will sacrifice these chickens in a Walmart parking lot there in Brooklyn, New York. Um, I thought that was uh, interesting. After they have this, you know, the rabbi comes and blesses these chickens, and then all of it once, the heads of the household kill these things, and then they, they actually don't eat them. They give them to the poor. So that chicken, you know, I guess in a sense they're doing their good deed too. I was astounded. Like, this happens still. Now, Modern man and our sensibilities, we think that's gross. In fact, you look on YouTube and there's some of the YouTube uh, videos there are people picketing this idea because of this mass slaughter and it's unkind to chickens. You know, like KFC is kind. But, um, <laughs> but uh, you know, modern man wants a bloodless religion. Let's, let's get honest. Modern man wants a bloodless religion. These Hasidic Jews are trying to hold on to some aspect of the Levitical law where blood was required. They know, they may not have a temple, but they know that blood is required. As you read through the book of Leviticus, one of the, probably, and this is why I challenge you to read through it all at one time, the thing that struck me is this, this overwhelming abundance of blood. I mean, it is everywhere in the book of Leviticus. I like to ask questions like when I'm reading the Bible, like what's behind, like what's going on, what, may, what are people thinking when this? And one of the things I began to wonder is like, where did all the blood go? Where did all the blood go in Leviticus? I mean, it's not just sitting there. They're not like slopping through it. At least I didn't know. Actually, the Bible doesn't tell us. You can... There are some historical evidence that the, the temple was made that actually had in the, um, in the floor channels that led to canals that led so that the blood would be able to be uh, washed out of there. But it was everywhere. Some of the blood, it is even said, might have even been, been sold to farmers for fertilizer back historically. What does this apply? How does this apply to us? Well, the, the term blood is used over 80 times, again, 80 times in the book of Leviticus. The key verse in the book of Leviticus, arguably, is Leviticus 17.11. This is a verse that everybody uh, should know, which says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it, this is God speaking, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for the life. You see why those Hasidic Jews in New York and why the Jews back in the Old Testament uh, shed so much blood is because they knew that death was required. Now in the book of Leviticus, there are five major offerings that people could make at the temple. And four out of five required blood sacrifice. The, burnt, the five are the burnt meal, peace, sin, and guilt offerings. Only the meal offering was, didn't require uh, sacrifice. Now, though there are some nuances to the other four, they all had three things in common. One, the animal had to be without blemish. Two, in offering the sacrifice, 
people were to lay their hands on the animal, confessing their own sins upon that animal, transferring, in a sense, the guilt of that sin onto the animal, and then the animal's blood had to be shed in order for atonement to happen. And not, it had to be shed completely. The animal had to die. I want you to think about this. You're an Israelite. Your families come out of Egypt. You're learning all kinds of new things, but you're traveling around with two million or so other people without a home, without a land, and you're in your tent. You knew that the more you learned about God's law and it's being taught by Moses and the other leaders, the more you learned, I have sinned against God. And so you want to make atonement. You want to appease this God that you're belong to, but you're just learning about. This is true also when they got into the land and then Solomon built the temple. Those families would want to know that God accepted them and wasn't angry with them. And what do we do? Well, we must offer a sacrifice. So you think, what do you do? I well, how have I sinned against God? What do I want to communicate to God? Do I want to reestablish a relationship? Do I want God to remove my guilt? That's what the different sacrifices represented in the book of Leviticus. I want to do a little math, though. In the book of Leviticus, well, I'm sorry, in the book of Numbers, I said this in Numbers chapter 1. Anybody remember how many adult males came out of Egypt? 603,500. Let's say that that represents the number of families in that generation coming out. In order, let's say you're the head of a household and you want to offer a sacrifice for the sake of your family, just to show your devotion and and receive. In order for 600,000 people, families, to offer a sacrifice, if you only wanted to do it once out of every four years, Take an animal, an unblemished animal from your flock, bring it to Jerusalem, because all sacrifices had to happen in the temple. In order for 600,000 families to do it, just once every four years, what that meant is, and this is done on a completely volunteer basis, that every day over 400 animals would be slaughtered in the temple. Every day day, over 400 animals would die just if you wanted to do it once every four years. And, it, and, and that's just the voluntary sacrifices. That doesn't count the mandatory sacrifices that every day, morning and evening, a lamb had to be slaughtered in the morning and then in the evening. And then on the Sabbath, another lamb in the morning and the evening. So it was two on every Sabbath day. During the festivals of Passover and unleavened bread, there were other sacrifices. But the seventh month, the seventh month of the Jewish calendar was by far the bloodiest. On the first day, that's the, the day of the celebration of trumpets or Rosh Hashanah, one bull, one ram, seven lambs, and one goat. On the tenth day of the seventh month, that's the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, one bull, one ram, seven lambs, one goat. On the fifteenth day, which was the beginning of an eight-day celebration called the Feast of Booze, 
During that eight days, 71 bulls, 15 rams, 105 lambs, and eight goats would be sacrificed just in one eight-day period. This was the bloodiest place on planet Earth. Hands down. This was the bloodiest place on the planet. Why do I belabor this? I belabor it because if you don't read the book of Leviticus, you miss this. In the sacrificial system, God is communicating over and over and over that sin is costly. God is screaming through the crying out of dying animals. And have you ever heard an animal die? When we lived in Uganda, we went to a church called Calvary Chapel of, in Tebe, and the Muslims, not, I'm sorry, not the Muslims. I think the Muslims paid for this, but they wouldn't do this. But as a way of distracting from worship, they set up a pig slaughter right next to it. And don't you know that the pigs would be slaughtered during the service time? <laughs> Have you ever heard a pig get slaughtered? It's loud. My kids loved it. I mean, I, I had no problem getting my kids to go to church. I mean, they were really little, and they were like, let's go! Because they, they got there, and they went straight to that table. They saw those pigs get hoisted up by their back. I mean, it was loud. I actually can make a sound of a pig being slaughtered, but I won't do that. God, through this system, is saying loud and clear that sin matters. I am not apathetic to the way you live your life. I am not uninterested in your insincere worship. I am not disinterested in the way that you treat your neighbor or in your sexuality or in the way you raise your kids. I, have, I care about the way you spend your time. God is saying, I see everything. I see it all. I know what no one else knows. I know what your spouse doesn't know. I know the depths of your depravity. And though I've delivered you out of Egypt, you are going to learn that I, the Lord your God, demand holiness. And when holiness is not met, then something has to die. I will not accept a bloodless religion. I am angry and something must die. Either you will die or something will die in your place, but something must die. That's the overriding message of the blood in Leviticus. But the third thing that I see, the third gospel truth that I see, not only is the call to holiness, not only is the provision of blood, but the third one is the inadequacy of animals. As you move through the book of Leviticus, you're not only confronted with this call for holiness or the God's provision for blood, but also how fleeting and how futile the whole system was. 
If Tuesday's morning and evening sacrifice didn't suffice for Wednesday, and if last year's feast of booze slaughter didn't hold us over for more than a year, how are we ever going to know that God's satisfied? How are we ever going to know that we can rest in God's acceptance of us permanently? Families had to be left wondering if the mandatory sacrifices that the priests offer aren't even, won't even carry but just for a period of time. What about, the, what about the lamb that we gave two years ago, Dad? How do we know that's going to suffice and that God's going to be happy? We keep having to offer these things. It seems insufficient. It seems like it doesn't work. His whole system is broke. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. The system doesn't work. God wanted the Jews to understand this. The system doesn't work. We learn years later. By the way, this happened for over 1,500 years. This system, which was set in place by Moses, happened every day. For over 1,500 years. Imagine how many animals lost their lives. These commands in Leviticus are part of a shadow covenant. And that shadow covenant was set up to prepare the people for something that was coming that had substance. Look with me in Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. See, the old Levitical system was just part of a shadow covenant. These sacrifices were only able to offer a surface level of cleansing. It's the kind of cleansing that you do when you get a phone call from a friend who's half an hour away and says, hey, I'm in the area. I wanted to come by and see you. We'll be there in about a half an hour. You're like, great, great. We'll see you. Hang up the phone. Kids, clean your rooms. Who's got the kitchen? Someone do the guest bathroom. It's that kind of cleansing. You know, the surface level stuff. And then they come in and your house looks spectacular and you're like, oh, please don't let them go into the coat closet. That's the kind of cleansing, the surface level cleansing that this shadow covenant worked out. But God's command of be holy as I am holy wasn't just talking about the surface level. It was talking about getting down into the roots of who people really are. It was God doesn't want just the, the countertops clean. God doesn't just want the, 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 the outside of the toilet clean. He wants the whole house cleaned. God, listen here. And this is something that I think most church folks miss. And this is a huge gospel issue. God demands perfection. Be holy, for I am holy. God, people, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. God 
demands perfection from you. If he is going to be accepted, if you, I mean, if he is going to accept you and you are going to be accepted by him, you must be holy as God is holy. Most church folks don't understand that God hates sin. Most church folks don't understand that he won't accept imperfect people into his presence. And so what do we do? We compare ourselves. I go to a church which is better than that church. My church isn't dying. My church is thriving. I, get, you know, I know how to work the system. I know how to feel, make everybody here feel comfortable. We compare ourselves with one another. You know what that is? That's a bloodless religion. That's a bloodless religion. The problem is, is that you and I both know about ourselves that we aren't holy. The Israelites knew that. You know that. Right now you can think of things that you've done in the last day or two that you don't want people to know about. Thoughts you've thought. Perverse things you've considered. You know you're not holy. Jews knew they weren't holy either. That's why more animals had to keep dying. We're still not clean. These sacrifices aren't working. That's the weight that Jews lived under that we don't live typically under. I want, that's why I'm taking so much time because I want you to feel the weight of what the Bible puts on us. Because in the fullness of time, In the weight and gravity of this context, in the fullness of time, God the Son stepped in. God the Son stepped in to our unholiness and to our perversity to become the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Not in a shadow kind of way, not with the unblemished bodies of imperfect animals, but with the body given for the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5 says that Christ said, and he's quoting Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8, sacrifices and offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. That's why when John the baptizer saw his relative and he cried out, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was a revolutionary thought. See, this wasn't a lamb that was brought by the head of a household. This wasn't even a lamb brought by the Aaronic priest. This was God's lamb. Jesus was going to be a sacrifice like no other even though John didn't fully understand what that meant. So after three years of ministry, Jesus, like a lamb led to slaughter, was led to the cross. And on the cross, as Jesus died there, the wrath of God, the anger of God, that God had passed over for generations of God's elect, from, from all 
peoples of, of the nation of Israel and all of the elect that would live in all ethnic groups for all time, including many, if not most of the people in this room, God poured out his holy indignation for six hours. He pounded his son so that he wouldn't have to punish you because the old system didn't work. The shadow would never take away his anger. It would only defer it a little bit further down the line. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6 said, He was wounded for our transgressions, and he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, the Lord Jesus, was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. What's the result of that old bloody cross? Oh, oh man, this caught, when I finally saw this, my soul was set free. Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices that can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Do you see that? A single offering? What about the millions of offerings that have been offered? Oh, what worth is in the sacrifice of the Son of God? What value God places in the blood that His own Son shed? We sang songs about trusting in Christ. Do you see why you need to trust Christ? All the other things that you could bring, all the sacrifice of praise and all any, any sacrifice of Living as a, as a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans chapter 12. That doesn't suffice to take away the wrath of God. One sacrifice. One time. For all. But verse 14 to me. This is, when people ask my favorite verse of the Bible, this is it. For by, listen. Let this, just, let this just. Wash over you, for by a single offering, that's the cross, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus' final victory cry from the cross for you and for me is to tell us, die. It is finished, it's done. It's done. Christian, believe that. Put your hope in that. It is finished. And that finished work says, you're perfect. You're perfect. What did you do this week that you're ashamed of? Are you trusting in Christ? You're perfect. You're perfect. You've, and not just until you mess up next week says that you have been perfected for all time. By the cross, Christ bore the wrath reserved for me and you 
And when you put your faith in that alone, and that and that alone, God declares you perfect by the imputed righteousness of your Savior. Not because of works that you have done. That's filthy rags. But by the merit that he himself accomplished. It's finished. The price is paid. So what are we to do to close up? What are we to do? The first is fear God. If you don't know Christ, if you're hoping on a bloodless religion, you need to stand before God on trembling knees and fear Him. He is not to be trifled with. Come to your senses and put your trust in the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I remember standing outside that chicken house thinking about all the blood that was in that Walmart parking lot. And the thought that crossed my mind is how absolutely pathetic is that? God has sacrificed his only son. And they're trying to buy him off with chicken blood. That's what it is. Boiled down to it. I hope you're not trying to buy God off with anything. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27 says, There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but for those who reject the cross, a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. My friends, encourage one another so that there is not an evil heart of unbelief within Liberty Church of Harrisburg. Encourage each other with the gospel. And then go and live to proclaim his glory among the peoples that God has put you among. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the hope of the gospel. We thank you for Christ. Lord, as I believe we're going to sit and take the table and reflect upon the, the bread and the cup and what that means for us. Lord, would that come with a sense of gravity right now? And Lord, we just offer to you our lives. And Lord, as we walk from here today, Lord, would you be speaking into the hearts of those that heard your voice today, maybe someone for the first time, and that you would call them and show them that you're kind, you're a kind and merciful Savior to those willing to forgive, but only through Christ. And it's in his name we pray.